Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called In Heaven and on Earth. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 20th, 2008. About a year before he died, Albert Einstein described himself in a letter as what he called, quote, a deeply religious unbeliever, end quote. Einstein was unapologetic about his fascination with the beauty, rationality, and complexity of nature. He embraced something like cosmic awe at the mystery of the world that he strove so mightily to understand. The eternal mystery of the world, he once wrote, is its comprehensibility. Einstein repudiated charges that he was an atheist, and he criticized the intolerance of those whom he once called, quote, the fanatical atheists, end quote. But Einstein never attended worship services. He didn't pray. He was a strict determinist, and he rejected doctrines like miracles or the afterlife. When asked about claims that he believed in a personal God, he categorically rejected the lie as, quote, a lie that is systematically repeated, end quote, even though he clearly and consistently denied it. He didn't believe in a God who was any sense personal or, as he put it, concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings. It's hard to imagine an idea of God more different than the God of the psalmist who wrote the Psalm 139 for this week. The God of the psalmist cares deeply and tenderly for each and every human being. He does, in fact, care about every person's fate. The psalmist believed that you could never flee so far that you were beyond the presence of God's Spirit. Whether I go up to the heavens or make my bed in the depths, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The darkest day can't extinguish the light of his love. And in some indescribable mystery of intimacy, God knew me before I was born. He fashioned me in my mother's womb, and he lovingly ordains all my days. I might feel and sense this a lot or a little, but it's true nevertheless. But God is not my heavenly valet. If I'm not careful, my narcissistic tendencies fashion a God in my own image who cares only or especially for my selfish whims and desires. The Old Testament story this week about Jacob's dream provides a helpful corrective. God not only cares for me, he cares for every person and all nations. When God first called Abraham to form a nation for himself, he said that he would bless not only the Hebrew nation, but all peoples on earth. Genesis 12:3 and 22:18. 18. 
When he repeated this divine call to Abraham's son Isaac, he repeated the global reach of his love. In you, Isaac, all nations on earth will be blessed. Genesis 26, 5. And when Isaac's son Jacob used a rock for a pillow and dreamed a dream at Bethel, God repeated verbatim, In you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. 28, 14. The only favoritism that God shows is his unconditional love for each person and every nation. In Ephesians, Paul emphasizes this point by making a clever phonetic play on words. God, says Paul, is the patera of every patria. He's the father from whom every family derives its name. God is not my privatistic God. He's not the God of Jews alone. He's not America's God, or even the God only of Christians. Rather, says Paul, he's the father of all fatherhood, the father of every family, or the father of the whole human family. He's the God of Muslims, Buddhists, and the God of atheists. Paul even expands God's fatherly favor to every family in heaven and on earth. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. Paul goes even further in this week's epistle. He uses sober language to describe the ambiguous history of all creation. On the one hand, he acknowledges cosmic suffering. Our sufferings provoke a sense of frustration, futility, weakness, and subjugation. We remain, what Paul says, in bondage to decay. Like a woman in childbirth, he says, all creation groans inwardly and outwardly. The pain can feel unbearable. Paul is thus brutally realistic about our human condition. But he also exudes confident hope. Believers should live in eager expectation, he says, looking forward to a future glory that will far eclipse present suffering. And so the destiny of all creation is liberation and freedom, adoption and redemption. The scale and scope of this future hope includes not only each person in every nation, but what Paul calls the whole creation. Romans 8, 12-25 There's an expansive logic to the Christian good news. Since God created all things in heaven and on earth, Colossians 1, 16, since he seeks the worship of things in heaven, in things on earth, in things under the earth, Philippians 2, 9-11. Since he intends to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Colossians 1, 20. And since he will sum up or bring together all things in heaven 
and on earth. Ephesians 1.10 And of course, God delights in bestowing his fatherly favor on the whole human family in heaven and on earth. Ephesians 3.15 From each person, every nation, and all creation, and so to the entire cosmos, not only on earth, but in heaven. God, says Paul, was in Christ, reconciling the cosmos to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In his bestseller book, Velvet Elvis, Pastor Rob Bell of Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, reminds us that the gospel is good news about God's fatherly favor to every human being and to all creation. It's especially good news, says Bell, for those who don't believe it. Quote, the church must stop thinking about everybody primarily in categories of in or out, saved or not, believer or non-believer. Besides the fact that these terms are offensive to those who are the un and the non, they work against Jesus' teaching about how we're to treat other people. As the book of James says, God shows no favoritism, so we don't either. End quote. For books this week, I review Randy Pausch with Jeffrey Zaslow, The Last Lecture, New York Hyperion, 2008, 206 pages. In September 2006, Randy Pausch, professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University, was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. He was 46, married for only seven years, and had three kids, ages four, two, and three months. About that same time, he had accepted an invitation from Carnegie Mellon to present a lecture in a long-running series that used to be called The Last Lecture, but had been renamed Journeys. Pausch pursued aggressive treatment that included radical surgery and experimental chemotherapy, but in August 2007, scans showed that the cancer had spread to his liver, 10 tumors, and his spleen. Doctors gave him three to six more months of good health, which, as I write, was about nine to ten months ago. And on September 18th, 2007, Randy Pausch stepped to the podium and gave his so-called last lecture to a packed audience of 400 people at Carnegie Mellon. The lecture was actually entitled, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. Pausch's one-hour talk has since received over six million views online. You can go to www.thelastlecture.com. This book, The Last Lecture, is a follow-on to Pausch's original lecture at Carnegie Mellon, what he calls, quote, a way for me to continue what I began on stage, end quote. 
In his introduction, he explains that he dictated the chapters on long bike rides using his cell phone headset. And then Jeffrey Zaslow, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, turned my stories into a book. The pages are quite small. There are 61 chapters in 200 pages. And the wisdom represents what Pals cherished as important life lessons. Never give up. Live for today. There's power in humility. Don't sweat the small stuff. Complaining never helps. Show gratitude. I didn't find most of what he wrote very deep or profound, but perhaps therein lies the most important life lesson. There are no big secrets to living a full life. Most of what is truly important is quite obvious. Pausch's book also provides a significant application for every reader. Just what would I write if given the same assignment with the same constraints? You can follow Randy Pausch's progress at his home page. Simply Google his name, Randy Pausch, P-A-U-S-C-H. The Last Lecture. For film this week, I review a remarkable movie called War Dance. It's from Uganda and was released in 2008. It's difficult for people to believe our story, says 14-year-old Dominic. But if we don't tell you our story, you won't know. And so, in this powerful documentary, some of the 200,000 orphans tell their stories about how the rebel activities of the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda killed thousands, displaced two million people from their ancestral homes into refugee camps, and subjected families to unspeakable atrocities. This film focuses on one single, quote, war zone displacement camp, end quote, in particular, and several of its children from the Patongo Primary School who practiced to compete in Uganda's annual national music competition, all the way in Kampala's National Theater. Of course, when they get to Kampala, they know that other children will view them not only as poor country bumpkins, but as children soldiers. The film deftly switches back and forth between three stories graphic descriptions by the children of what they experience at the hands of the ruthless LRA, their practice for an eventual competition in Kampala, and then daily life in the badly overcrowded displacement camp. As one child put it, in everything we do, if there's music, life becomes good, which is a very powerful testimony given the evil these children experience. The film is in English and a choli with English subtitles. War Dance, 2008, from Uganda. And finally this week, we continue our series of poems by John Donne. The title this week is called Holy Sonnet One. 
Thou hast made me, and shall thy work decay? Repair me now, for now mine end doth haste. I run to death, and death meets me as fast. And all my pleasures are like yesterday. I dare not move my dim eyes any way. Despair behind and death before doth cast such terror, in my feeble flesh doth waste by sin in it, which it towards hell doth weigh. Only thou art above, and when towards thee by thy leave I can look, I rise again. But our old subtle foe so tempteth me, that not one hour myself I can sustain. Thy grace may wing me to prevent his art, and thou like adamant draw mine iron heart. John Donne, Holy Sonnet 1 Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 20th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.